Welcome to the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. Have you ever wondered how people succeed in real estate and what steps they took to get there? If so, this podcast is for you. Your hosts, Sayla and Eileen Prack, interview top experts in the real estate community to share with you their real estate journey and how they achieved massive success. Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goals. Welcome to today's episode of the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Eileen Prack. And today our guest is Adam Craig, and he is a founding member of CLE Real Estate Group, a real estate investment company located just outside of Cleveland, Ohio. He began to pursue his passion for real estate investing and has closed more than 70 deals, accumulated a rental portfolio, topping $9 million in residential and commercial real estate since 2013. So Adam, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing really good. Thank you for having me. Adam, can you share a little bit about your background and how you got started with real estate? Sure. So I was pretty much born and raised in the Cleveland, Ohio area. Went to Kent State University for finance. Uh, Gosh, it was probably 2010. Shortly after graduation, I was going to get maybe a finance job or selling insurance or something along those lines. I was a a confused college kid, so I didn't really know. As most of us are. (laughs) Sure, sure. Yeah. So senior year of college, I was fortunate enough to uh, get an online business going. Essentially an online retail business, nothing sexy, but it did pretty well. So I got to the point where I was making enough money doing that, that it surpassed my first year entry level income for a finance job. So I decided just to kind of run with the business and see where it went. So still do that business uh, 12 years later, but I would say its height was in the 2015-16 area. But nevertheless, it gave me good income at an early age to sock into real estate because It's an online retail business. We rely on Amazon big time. So, you know, I knew that that business can go away at any time. So, real estate was the key to getting to the point where I wanted to go. So, saved everything from that, bought my first property, which was a single family home back in 2013, and just uh, went full blown into the real estate. When you bought your first single family home, was that for a rental, short term, or was it for your own primary? So my first home was a single family rental home. It was going to be a minor rehab, carpet and paint style style rehab, uh, and then lease it out. So I went back and forth for a long time, as a lot of investors do on single family duplexes, fourplexes. And there's a lot of pros and cons to either one of those. But uh, I settled on single families and I essentially bought those until 2018 when I started doing some commercial real estate. But I never ended up buying duplexes or fourplexes, though. They have their advantages uh, and disadvantages for sure. So you were an entrepreneurship straight out of college or even while you're still in college. And so how has that journey been for you having to be your own boss, setting your own schedule? And then how have you been able to build that over time? So yeah, I mean, really back to a young age, I was always doing some kind of little thing here and there. I made some money doing some things in high school, but never anything that was a legitimate business, something that was going to stick. So I tried a lot of things before that senior year of college. When something actually really, really worked, I found a good niche and it kind of took off. So I fully expected to be relocating, doing a nine to five, doing the whole corporate thing. That's what I went to college for, right? But uh, I don't think I realized at the time how fortunate I was not to have to do that because when I was 23 and entering the workforce, you're kind of young and hungry and ready to go. But I don't think it takes too many years of that grind for people to maybe think, hey, uh, maybe there's something else out there. Maybe this isn't what I want for the rest of my life. So as a young guy, I didn't appreciate it. But as a 34-year-old person doing this for about 12 years, I definitely appreciate it now. When you got into your first single family property, was that in Cleveland or was it in another market? 
It was in Cleveland. So I am from Cleveland, but when I say Cleveland, I'm actually from a city on the east side of Cleveland. And none of my investing has been in the actual city of Cleveland. It's all the suburbs of Cleveland. So a lot of people probably hear Detroit, they hear Cleveland and, and scary things come to mind. But you know, if you go to the suburbs, we're definitely a, a community of suburbs over here. And uh, there's a lot of great communities, good deals all over the place, east side, west side. So I uh, invested in a suburb of Cleveland in the city called Lyndhurst. And it was a little 1200 square foot uh, ranch. And I think I was pulling in around $975 a month, maybe cash flow in a couple hundred a month, which at the time I thought was great. But in hindsight, it wasn't the best deal. So after you did that first deal, what did you do after that? And what would you consider a good deal now? So I was essentially using all the income from my internet business to invest into real estate. So I did have to come up with these 20% in rental bank loans, 20% down, paying for the improvements out of my pocket. So I was only able to do maybe one or two properties per year for the first two or three years. And I was constantly going broke. I had four or five properties, but when you're spending thirty or 40000 to go into that property, sometimes that money just gets left in there and not usually a good situation. So I didn't realize that at the beginning, like, yeah, you can cash flow 200 bucks a month, but if you have $20,000 of your investment in that property, it's going to take you 15 years just to recoup that. So I stumbled across the Burr strategy probably about 2015. Back then, it wasn't really called the Burr method, which for any listeners that don't know, it's the buy, rehab, or rent, and refinance. And essentially, it's buying a undervalued property, making some kind of improvements, refinancing out of that, which means you get to take all your money back out, and then you do it over and over and over. And that way, you're not leaving your own hard-earned cash in the deal. You're essentially creating enough value to take that cash back out and do it again. After you discovered the Burr method... How did that work for you, especially being in entrepreneurship and trying to get the loans and everything like that out for it? And then having your capital within your current existing properties, how did you make that transition and how did you get started with that method? Yeah. So early on, I thought I was making enough money from my other business to just self-fund my whole real estate venture. But I was pretty naive to think that at the time. So I said, I'm never going to use a hard money lender, 12, 15%. No way. That's just crazy. But finally overcame that idea. And after I found a good connection with a nice hard money lender, the sky was the limit. So I went from buying two, maybe three a year, eight to 12 a year for probably about three years. So 30 to 40 properties in a little over a three-year period running around like a crazy person. It wasn't really a good time because I was still relatively new in real estate, maybe four or five years in, and I was taking on a lot more than I probably should have. So it was a great growth and learning time, but it was definitely a stressful time too. I was overworked, stressed out, sometimes cash short. So again, a great learning experience, but if I could have done over again, I would have slowed down a little bit. So as you were doing the Burr method, what was the biggest, I guess, lesson that you had taken away from that experience? We're going into it knowing nothing about how much repairs cost or how things even get repaired with no background as being a handyman. That was a huge learning curve because I got ripped off by countless contractors over the years. I still have contractor issues, but at least I know what I'm looking for and what I'm doing now. So I would say doing the burn method, you're normally doing a substantial rehab. So you need to get good at uh, knowing your numbers and knowing how much it should cost to fix things because contractors will take advantage of you if you don't. And as a real estate investor, you don't really have the ability to pay uh, retail pricing on a lot of this stuff. So get to know how much things cost and call around for multiple bids because and don't give too much money up front. Lost tens of thousands of dollars of contractors that just walked away from jobs because there wasn't enough money left in it. So that's a biggie. So as you're utilizing hard money lenders and you're doing 30, 40 transactions per year using the Burr method, how did you 
protect yourself? Or how did you mitigate some of the risks that are involved in with the construction costs increasing and having to pay back hard money lenders and all the unknown unknowns within real estate? So just a slight correction, I was doing about 12 properties a year. So I did about 36 properties over a three-year period. But even at that... So back then, you know, 2015, 16, deals were everywhere. I was getting such low prices on properties through... I was very picky on which ones I pick out. So I sometimes got them on auction sites like auction.com and Hubzoo, or sometimes I was able to get an offer on the table within hours of the property getting listed. So savvy type properties. So if you get these amazing deals on properties, you have a lot of wiggle room for air. For example, I buy a property for $50,000 that needs a extensive rehab, the after repair value on that particular property back then might've been $150,000, meaning I have essentially $100,000 of wiggle room not to screw this up royally. So if a $40,000 rehab cost 60, I was still cashing out, getting my money back. These were essentially really good flip type properties, but I held on to them as rentals. So doing that today, you definitely have to be a little more careful. The deals aren't abundant like they used to be. So I don't know that you can really get that crazy, but I had the fortunate thing of timing while I was learning how to reel all that in. And then fast forward from doing the Burr method and doing 36 to 40 transactions over that period of time to where you are today, what transition did you end up making and how did you get into that? I always thought that I would buy maybe 50 or 100 single family homes and then look for apartment buildings. So I did about 75 or so deals. Of those 75 properties, I had a portfolio of 45 to 50 because I did flip some. And then 2018 came and I had my first child and I had been working out of the office forever. My whole life uh, had been a work at home office situation. and It wasn't really easy to do that anymore. So I decided I got to go look for an office space for rent. So I'm looking, 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 and I came across a building in my hometown, right near a little trendy part of our downtown area. It was for sale. I ended up buying that building for $275,000 without really knowing exactly what I was planning on doing other than I was going to work out a part of it and try to rent out the rest. So that actually worked out so well. I did it again and then again, and then it came to the time where one commercial building was equivalent to maybe eight or 10 single family homes. And it was very hard for me to decide to, hey, let's not do the single family home thing anymore. But I eventually completely gave it up. And now I focus specifically on commercial buildings. We love hosting this show. When we started this podcast, we were doing all the editing and post-production ourselves. Now we are very excited to have this particular company as a partner of the show to do all the post-production for us because it gives us the freedom to focus on the two things we care about serving you, our listener, at a higher level, and growing our own multifamily business. If you are like Sayla and me, then you want to add value to others while scaling your business. A podcast is the best way to do both, and we invite you to contact Adam Adams. He can help you launch your podcast, market your show for more listeners, and take all the post-production off your plate so you can focus on your business instead of in it. Listeners of this show can get a free consultation with Adam. To schedule your free consultation, find the link in the show notes. And the commercial buildings that you focus on, are they all in your local market? I would say they're all within about an hour drive, my local market. Yeah. So Cleveland still has a pretty good market in terms of affordability. So a lot of the California West Coast people are all banging on the door to get into Cleveland because it's difficult to buy cash flowing properties, either the residential or the commercial side out there. When you're looking for a commercial building, what are some of the things that you look for when you're looking to acquire a new property? 
So we pretty much took the same strategy from the single family business into the commercial in that we're burying properties, going into these nitty gritty, sometimes completely vacant or partially vacant properties and doing a major rehab. And we're doing big, giant value add projects. So on a single family home, maybe you can accumulate $40,000 in equity on a really good value add, meaning you can cash out hold on to it as a rental and you have $40,000 of equity day one. Well, on a commercial building, you can have not a significant investment and you can have four or five times that on uh, maybe similar work. A lot of people look at these buildings and they think bigger building, more work, but that's not always the case. Actually, similar to that of a single family home for even a larger commercial building. And then the commercial buildings, when you look at it, are they primarily occupied or do you look for what are some of the criteria that you evaluate as you're looking at whether or not it's a good acquisition for you? So when I got into it, I had no idea. I just kind of tried to figure out what my mortgage was going to be and maybe what I can bring in. What I didn't understand at the time was how commercial buildings are valued, which is essentially the net operating income. So it's not derived as much as comparable buildings as it is the income the building's bringing in. So if you buy a building that's bringing in $2,000 a month and you end up making that building bringing in $10,000 a month, you can sometimes 2x or 3x the uh, value on the appraisal or on the sale. So that's what we look for in an Excel sheet that I have for commercial valuation has been a big help for that. So I always go to my Excel sheet, plug in my numbers, and it kind of spits out what we're looking for. And typically we're looking for a building to be worth at least two or two and a half times our investment after we're done with it. On these commercial buildings, what are some of the value add opportunities that you like to see? So it's nice to be able to create additional square feet. We're working on a building that's one of the bigger projects we've taken on. And there were a couple really wide open, giant, unfinished rooms. So you can get maybe 40 cents a square foot for something that is essentially unfinished space, or you can get maybe a dollar a square foot for office space. So we're looking to go into buildings where we could get them cheap enough to turn space like that into finished space and then charge more money for that. So essentially, we want something that most people don't want, or it's too big of a job to take on. Or occasionally, we are able to get better buildings that are in decent condition just by being an early mover on the building. So that does apply in the commercial real estate world as well. There are buildings that are probably priced low. And if you jump on those quick enough, you can get a good deal. And what's a typical hold time? And how long does it usually take to implement one of your value add opportunities? I would say on a smaller project, somewhere in the six to nine month period before we can actually get a uh, building with tenants going. And then we're working on a 25,000 square foot building, one of the biggest projects we take on because every single inch of it needed work. So we've been working on this since last December. We're starting the pre-lease for the building now, but from the purchase date to the time we're actually collecting rent, at least 14 or 15 months. And we're doing that by uh, raising private money for the purchase and the repairs. And then after we get the building stabilized, we'll take it to the bank and we'll get refinanced and our lenders will get paid back. Are there maybe... What are the three top important attributes that tenants typically look for when they're looking to rent out a space like this? So at least at this relatively early stage of my commercial career being about four years in, we're doing somewhat smaller buildings in like C plus or B minus areas. So we have a lot of mom and pop investors, not as many retail investors or franchise investors. So there are definitely two different types of buildings. I would say C or B class buildings are typically not in the premium part of town. They're a little bit older, but lower rents. So it opens the door to a lot of mom and pop. So we have everything from hair salons to 
coffee shops to financial services and typically a lot of smaller businesses, two or three people running smaller space. Those people have lower requirements than your Starbucks's or your franchise places. So again, our buildings, I wouldn't consider them ugly, but they're not class A stuff that you'll see a Starbucks in or something like that. Sometimes 1960s and older buildings. And sometimes you see like the plazas or the places where those buildings are located. How do you differentiate between where one is going to be successful versus another one maybe like down the road might not do as well? So again, that comes into pricing. There's typically a price point that most people will eventually bite at. And what we try to do is get the building at a low enough price where we can offer something slightly below market rent. So you don't have to be necessarily as careful about the city that you invest in. You don't want to invest in a ghetto, whether you're doing commercial or residential, but we're investing in cities, commercial side that we wouldn't necessarily invest in on the residential side because commercial tenants are often looking for different things like proximity to freeway or population around them. So they all have different needs and they're not living in the space. So they're not super concerned of what the neighborhood around them is like. When you were doing the Burr method, you were utilizing hard money lenders. And then when you're transitioning and then now you're focused in the commercial building space, I heard that you're focused now and you're also raising some of the private money as well. How did you make that transition? And then how did you start to build out your network of different types of investors? So after about, I don't know, five or six years of really not telling anyone my successes in real estate, I started telling everyone, created a social media campaign, uh, had an Instagram account. I should have done it earlier, but eventually you hear that you need to be out there. And sure enough, it was true. So once I created a uh, big presence online, started sharing what I did on Instagram with videos, people could start to see, okay, he maybe he knows what he's doing. Because without that, there's no trust factor. How is someone supposed to give you money if they have no track record of who you are, especially if they don't know you? So after I did that in about 2019, I was able to attract some investors and then it started to snowball. And I'm always looking for more money. There's never enough, at least at the stage of my career, but I've got about 12 or 15 uh, private investors now that's funding most of my deals. Awesome. And for you, Adam, what are you looking to focus on in the upcoming future? And with the current environment within real estate, is any of your strategy changing at all? So I, two years ago, had you asked me, I was still looking at residential, maybe apartment buildings or something along those lines. But now after doing the non-residential commercial for a few years, I think I'm going to be completely done with the residential side. So residential is great. Tons of people making a ton of money. I don't want to give it any bad rap because I still hold my single family portfolio. Most of it, there's good investments, no doubt. But what I've discovered on the commercial side is you can have a similar investment and have not as much work in on the rehab side and definitely way less work on the management side. I'll give you a quick example. If you have a $5 million, 100 unit apartment building, you're going to have 100 families living in there with 100 showers and 100 stoves and potentially 100 washer and dryers. You could also buy a $5 million strip plaza, maybe with eight to 10 commercial tenants in there. And most of these commercial tenants are on triple net leases, meaning they take care of all the repairs. So you could see right there how much more labor intensive a residential building is going to be. And potentially it could yield more cash flow. Residential tends to have somewhat higher cash flow, but in terms of how much work's required, I'm all for the non-residential side, at least right now. But I can definitely see me pivoting somewhere in the future. I don't want to discriminate against really any asset class, industrial, residential. It's good to have diversity in your portfolio. And so Adam, how has real estate investing impacted your life? 
Again, as I said earlier, I didn't appreciate it maybe as much, but now that I'm a little bit older, we bought our, uh, I guess you would call it our forever house a couple of years ago, my wife and I, and we have a five-year-old and four-year-old and nice neighborhood. So I take my dog up and down the street and 10 o'clock in the morning, go on a walk and it's a ghost town. Everyone's at work. The attorneys, the doctors, they're all at work. And early on, I didn't appreciate that. But now I'm like, hey, I could walk my dog at 10 in the morning. I go to the gym after that. Still work. I work at different hours. I work sometimes 365 days a year, vacations, Christmases, but at least I could choose for the most part when I want to work. And during COVID, a lot of people got a little taste of that. And I think people are starting to realize that there's big value in that. People will give up income now to be able to have some flexibility and freedom. And I've been fortunate enough to have that for the most part ever since college. So that's been great. And what is the one thing that you know now about real estate that you wish you knew when you first started? So early on, I thought I was going to be a passive investor. I thought I'd do a corporate thing or I'd have my internet business. And then I would have a property manager do managing my real estate on the side. But after about five years in, I decided I really liked it and wanted to be hands-on. So we manage our own stuff. We have in-house employees that help out. But I didn't think that I would want to be so intense into it, but it really became a huge passion of mine. My wife is into it, but she probably hates how much I talk about it. So sometimes I have to tamper that down, but it definitely became a big part of my life, much bigger than I anticipated. And what is the one thing that sets the successful people apart in real estate? From my experience, essentially just taking the leap and doing it, even if you're not going to make a ton of money, there's a lot of deals out there where you can break even or make a little bit of money. And I think you don't have to be afraid as much as people are finding like this perfect opportunity to come along. Because after you do your first one, maybe you'll decide it's not for you, but maybe you'll say, okay, I learned a few things and let's keep rolling. So really just the doers and the uh, people who don't. And I have to ask also, because you've been in entrepreneurship basically your entire life career outside after college. So how do you structure your days, look at the tasks that you have on hand, since now you're setting up your own schedule versus having to go to a job where somebody else dictates what your schedule would typically look like? So during that time when I was doing 12 houses a year, I was running around way too much, but I didn't have kids at the time. So after I had kids in 2018, my perspective changed, not because necessarily like I wanted it to, but I think I saw like YouTube videos and Instagram videos of like people on their deathbed saying like, what's your biggest life regret? And I don't know, like four out of 10 of them said I worked too much. I didn't spend enough time with my family. And I really don't care how many properties I die with necessarily. So I think it's really important to at least the time when my kids are young and they want to hang out with their dad to spend that time with them. So I'm doing two, maybe three properties a year, which it's on the commercial side is bigger numbers, but not crazy amounts of work. I have a real estate mentor on the commercial side and he's been doing this way longer than I have. And he's still working 60 hours a week and he loves it, but different philosophies, different strokes, I guess. So for right now, I'm spending equal amounts of time on my health, my family, my work. I try to have an even pie, as they say. And when my kids get a little older and they don't want to hang out with dad as much, maybe <laughs> I'll really go into it. I'm more hardcore. I know. We're in, in that thick of it also with our little ones, where all they want is mommy and daddy. And you just kind of have to like really appreciate this time right now with them. Because later on, I hear from other parents when they get into their teenage years, it's like, oh, I'm too cool for mom and dad now. And they'll do their own things. But then they'll boomerang back in their 20s. <laughs> right. Yeah, I hear that all the time. And when you're in the thick of it, it's tough. You're like, oh my God, leave me alone. But you have to remember like someday they're not going to be tugging on you. So I try right. to remember that. <laughs> and Adam, where can our listeners find out more about you and what you're doing? You can follow me on Instagram. It's Adam the Investor. My website is cleinvest.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for all your time today, Adam. Appreciate it. Thank you. 
And thank you for listening to our podcast today, brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate? We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. If you're anything like Zayla and me and believe that real estate investing is a great way to create passive income and build long-term wealth, check out our free apartment syndication due diligence checklist for passive investors at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Zayla and I created this checklist for ourselves as we evaluated different multifamily syndication opportunities as a passive investor. So we would love to share it with you so you can use it as a resource as well. Download your free copy today at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonavestcapital.com and fill out the contact us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.